that becomes an excuse for covering up abuse. You know, we don't need a report. We can just handle that internally, right? And sometimes it can be it, it can be used as an excuse to to overlook sin in the pastor's life or let people get away with stuff because you know we're afraid of of giving the church a, a bad name. So you might be kind of scared when you hear the term church member because it sounds a little bit cultish, right? Well, for the next four weeks, what we're going to be doing, we're going to be talking about what the Bible says about, about church membership. Because when the Bible talks about being a member of a church, the Bible takes membership in the church, and God's church, very seriously. But it's not membership in a country club. It's definitely not membership in a cult, a personality. It's membership in a family. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2, if you have your Bible. So Ephesians chapter 2, as we talk about what it means to be a member of a church, it's what it means to be a member of a family. Now in Ephesians chapter 2, um, the first part of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it's just this beautiful picture of what happens in an individual's life when they put their trust in Jesus. Okay? It, it talks about, you know, before you were, you were dead. Sins. You were facing God's wrath for your sin. You were a slave of evil. And you were separated from God. But then what does it say? It says, but Jesus, he poured out his love on us and he transformed us so we're not under God's wrath. We're experiencing his love. And we're not dead, we're alive, but we're not a slave to sin. Instead, we're an instrument in God's hands to do good. And to help make the world a better place, right? And I think for a lot of us that as Christians, we can kind of stop and we love. If you've been to church for a while, there's a good chance that you might be probably heard, you know, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 a few times, anybody? Right? That's the one thing we think about a lot when you first become a Christian. When we talk to Eli, when we talk to Leah about, man, when you become a Christian, look at what God's done in your life. He's been taking you from death to life, from darkness to life. But it doesn't stop there. Ephesians chapter 2 doesn't stop there. And it continues on to say that when we put our faith in Christ, He doesn't just transform us individually. He transforms us as a community as well. And when we put our faith in Jesus, we don't just come to a relationship with Him individually. We come to a relationship with each other as well. That's what we're looking at here in the second part of Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read starting in verse 11. Okay? It says, Therefore, because of what Jesus has done for you, therefore... Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, and we'll talk about the Gentiles in a second, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, the first part of Ephesians chapter 2 has a but God. The second part has a but now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the love of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. 
reconciles both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and he preached peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints. And members, there's that word, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. And him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what we see in the second part of Ephesians chapter 2, what we see here is that when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, it's not just you and your Bible and the Holy Spirit. When you're born again, you're born again into a spiritual family. You're born again into a spiritual family. Look with me at verse 19. Look at what verse 19 says is the change that happens in somebody's life when they put their faith in Jesus. We already talked about the individual change. Well, this is the community change. In verse 19 it says, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, this word household, it doesn't just mean a house, like a single family house or an apartment or like and it's not talking about the building. It's talking about family. And it's talking about the immediate family. It's talking about the people that you live with. Your, your brothers and your sisters and your, and your parents. It's talking about an immediate family. What this is saying is that, you know, in the same way I think about my family. So I have three daughters, Valerie, Ruby, and Rose. And Rose is my youngest. And she was born uh, about three years ago. And when Rose is born, it's impossible for Rose to become Lindsay's daughter and my daughter without also becoming Valerie and Ruby's sister, right? And, you know, there's, there's times, and those of you that are parents, maybe you can maybe you can relate to this, that there's times, and I've actually heard my daughter say this, where they're like, I kind of wish I was a little child, <laughs> right? And that, that's kind of natural. Um, but we don't have that choice, because to be born into, into our family as Lindsay's daughter and my daughter, she instantaneously not only becomes our child, she also becomes a sister to Valerie and, and to Ruby. And that's what this is saying, is that when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, you also enter into a relationship with each other. And that relationship is the relationship of a family. Now, think with me for a second about a family. A, a family is so close because of what you have in common. Right? And in a family, what you have in common, you have flesh and blood in common. You have your DNA. Right? You, have, you share this flesh and blood. So there, there might be differences. You might have different personalities. You might have different hobbies. You might have different interests. But, but you can be unified. You can be together because of what you have in common. And in our spiritual family, you look around this room, and not all of us share the same, the same biological flesh and blood. Right? Um, but what we share, what unites us together, isn't biological flesh and blood. It's the flesh and blood of Christ. Right? That he has made us one. We become one. We become one family in him. And that's what we share together. So here's the thing. As we think about that, what it means to be a member of, of the family of God, what it means to be a member of the church, it means we should treat each other like family. We should treat each other like family. You know, um, we talked a second ago about how sometimes 
we kind of resent this term church membership because it can kind of sometimes feel like a, like a country club. This kind of pretentious type of thing, oh, are you good enough for me or, or whatever. But I think the, the truth is sometimes, sometimes I think we treat each other like we're members of the country club. Right? Like we kind of see each other like, hey, you come to the thing you know, next week, yeah, I'm coming. Oh, you know, wasn't the food good at this day? Oh, it was great. Yeah. Hey, have you ever seen next week? Yeah. And we just kind of we come in and then we and we say hi to each other and maybe we know each other's names and we you know maybe we maybe we share a meal together once in a while, but, but it's really just kind of like it is an event that we're coming to together. And we treat each other more like members of a country club instead of members of a family. But what this is saying is that when we become we when we come into a relationship with God, that means we should treat each other like family. That means, you know, Paul in his, in his letters, uh, in letters later on to Timothy, he says, treat older men and women like fathers and mothers. Treat people that are about your same age, treat them like sisters and brothers. Treat younger people, treat younger people like children. Right? And so when we think about, um, just a second ago, we heard from, from Leah and from Eli, and in a few minutes after the end of the service, we're going to have a chance to have all of you will come out and celebrate this with us, where we're celebrating, we're celebrating the fact that they've been born not just into a relationship with God, but they've also been born into a relationship with us, and that they are now our brothers and sisters. Eli is our, Eli is our little brother, or maybe our big brother for some of us, and, and, and Leah is, is our sister. And so the question I want to ask us is, are we treating each other like brothers and sisters? When, when people that are older than me have things going on in their life, am I caring or are you caring about them the same way you care about your own parents? You know, am I treating Leah the same way I would treat a sister? Am I treating Travis the same way I would treat a brother? When I look at Eli, do I see somebody who's like, oh, you know, the popas are going to take care of him? Or, or do I see like, hey, God has given me a responsibility to help pour into this young man and help him grow, obviously, with the permission and with the, with the blessing of, of his parents, right? But we should see that we have these types of family relationships. And so we don't just treat each other like members of the same club. We treat each other like a family, which means we invest in relationships with each other. Right? Well, two things I want you to see that happens inside this family. Um, two things that happen, two things that we have in God's family. First of all, we have some unexpected relationships. We have some unexpected relationships, or like I said here, cross, countercultural relationships. You know, as we think about relationships, the way our culture today, the way we kind of think about relationships and friendships, it's based on common interests, right? It's based on the idea, you know, okay, you have the same hobby as me. You're in the same life stage as me. You know, our, our kids play the same sports. Um, you know, we, we have the same political opinions. And we find people that kind of look like us, that kind of agree, uh, agree with us, that are already doing the same things that we're doing. And then we just kind of get to know them because we have this shared activity. But what happens in the, fam in the family of God, I'm losing my earpiece here. So I get for trying to be Britney Spears with the headset, I guess. <laughs> um, what, what happens in the family of God, what happens in the family of God is that God puts us together with people that are not exactly like us. And what God loves to do is to create these countercultural relationships, these unexpected relationships, where he loves to take people that are as different as you could imagine and then put them in the same family 
and bring, and bring them into unity in Christ. Look with me at verses 14 through 16 in this passage we just read. This is what it says. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. It says, for he himself is our peace. Okay, he himself is our peace. Now, when we think of peace, we probably often think about like um, a sense of calm that you get. You know, I, I was anxious, then I did some deep breathing, and then I uh, lay down for a while, went for a walk, and now I feel calm. Right? We, we think, of, we, we think of, of peace. We think of it like that. Or maybe we think of peace, because this isn't peace that's talking about just internal peace. It's talking about peace between each other. And it's not just peace between each other in the same sense that, like, we're not fighting. You know, like, these two countries, they used to be at war, and now they're at peace. doesn't mean they're good friends. It just means they're not trying to kill each other anymore, right? It's not just talking about that type of peace. Peace in the Bible goes back to the Hebrew word shalom, which means to live in peaceful harmony with each other, to, to live a life where everything is in its right place, where we are, we're living in close, harmonious relationships with each other. And that's what we see in the rest of these verses. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create one new man in place of, of the two. And so what we see here. So when we talk about countercultural relationships or unexpected relationships, okay, this is talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, the, the Jews are the, the Jews are the descendants of Israel. So for, for thousands of years before this was being written, for thousands of years ago at this point, God had chosen them to be his people. He'd chosen them to be in a relationship with him. He'd chosen them to be, his, to be his children, right? And so they had God's laws. They had God's commands. They had the Bible. And, and that, was what they, that was one of the things that they really identified themselves as. And, and Gentiles, you know, there, there's, Gentiles doesn't, relate to, doesn't refer to a country. There wasn't like a country of, of, of Gentile nation or something like that. Gentile is basically just a word for other. It's, it's, a, it's a word the Jews would use to say, hey, who are we? We're the descendants of Jacob. We're the Jewish people. We're God's people. And the Gentiles, they're not Jews. They're outsiders. They're others. And so from the time that the Jewish people became a people, a large part of what it meant to be Jewish was that you didn't associate with the Gentiles, that you didn't intermarry with them. You didn't even go to their house for a meal. You didn't share their traditions. You kept separate from them. But look at what it's saying. God's saying that when, when the Jewish people and the Gentile people come into relationship with God through Jesus, not only is the hostility taken away, not only do they stop resenting each other and fighting each other, they become one. They become a family. They become one family in Christ Jesus. And so here's the question I want to ask you today. Who are some of the people that God has put in your life? Who are some of the Christians that God has put in your life? Because remember what we said is that what God loves to do, what, what culture loves to do, is to find people that are exactly the same as us and try to get along, right? But what God loves to do is take people who might seem on the surface to be completely different and to put them together and to make us one 
to make us live in peace with each other, to not only take away hostility, but to give unity. Who are some of the people that God, who are some of the Christians that God has put in your life? Because the the thing is, what this means is that it might not be the people that you expect. Because maybe you're waiting on and you're praying for and you're hoping for, you know, God, give give me people that have the same hobbies as me. People that are in the same life stage as me. People that have the same interests as me. People that have a personality that's compatible with mine. People that are from the same cultural background as me. And maybe that's what you're thinking it's going to look like, but here's the thing. Maybe God has put people in your life right now. Maybe you're sitting next to or in front of or, or, or behind or, or in the same room with people. That on the surface, you would look at them and say, hey, you know, maybe I don't have anything against them, but there's no way we can be close. We're too different. Maybe God has put the person in this room who five years from now can be your best friend. But you would just kind of tend to overlook them because on the surface, they seem so different from you. Right? Who are some of the people that God has put in your life? And maybe instead of, instead of expecting and waiting and hoping that God's going to bring that person, that friend that's just going to check every single box, instead, instead of that, maybe you can start waiting and hoping and looking and working to see how God can help you become unified, help you become closer with some of the people that are already in this room with you right now. Because after all, when we come into relationship with God, we also come into relationship with each other. When we become God's children, we become each other's brothers and sisters. You know, I think probably when we look at God doing this in the Bible, maybe one of the best examples of this, one of the clearest examples is in Jesus' own ministry. Jesus was famous for just bringing people together that didn't seem to, like they would fit and creating unity. One of my favorite examples of this is, um, so if you look at lists of Jesus' disciples, one of Jesus' disciples of the 12, his 12 disciples that were the people, the men that he would spend the most time with, one of them was a guy named Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. Now, the Zealots were basically, in the first century, the Zealots were basically like an ultra-right-wing, extreme terrorist organization. Seriously. They were these people because, at that point, the the Roman Empire had taken over and had occupied Israel, and they were... And they were ruling Israel. And so the zealots were this group of people that were trying to, they were basically insurgents. That They were people that were trying to throw off the Roman rule. They hated the Romans. And even more than the Romans, they hated other Jewish people that were being too friendly with the Romans, who might be trying to kind of sidle up to the Romans to try to get ahead, to try to get rich, to try to get power. And so what the zealots would often do is they would, assassin- they would literally assassinate Roman, Roman political figures and Roman political leaders. And they would also sometimes go and assassinate Jewish people who seemed like they were betraying their people by making allegiances with the Romans. To try to say, we're the Jewish people, we have to, we have to be pure, right? This was Simon the Zealot. Now, 
one of the other people, if you read the list of Jesus' 12 disciples, one of the others is a guy named Matthew the tax collector. Now, what do we know about Matthew the tax collector? Tax collectors at the time were Jewish people who would get rich by extorting money, by bullying and taking advantage of and extorting money from their fellow Jewish people on behalf of the Roman Empire. So you have Simon the Zealot, and then you have Matthew the tax collector. And what might seem natural to us, if we were Jesus, which should remind us that Jesus thinks very differently from us, is say, hey, I'm going to go start two ministries. I'm going to start a ministry to the tax collectors, you know, get them all in the same room, speak their language, say, hey, we love you guys. Don't worry about what those other people say. We're going to start a ministry to the tax collectors, and we're going to start another ministry to the zealots, right? And we're going to, the zealots are going to come to know Jesus, and then the tax collectors are, come, are going to come to know Jesus, and they're going to kind of stay over here, and they're going to kind of stay over here. Because after all, I mean, Matthew, the tax collector, is the exact type of person that Simon the Zealot is trying to kill. But what does Jesus do? Jesus puts them right next to each other. He puts them in the same life group. He, he, he puts them in, he travels together with them. He says, hey, you're, you're my disciple, you're my disciple, which means you guys are brothers. And then Jesus, before he dies, he kneels before Simon the Zealot. And he washes Simon the Zealot's feet. And then he kneels before Matthew the tax collector. And he washes Matthew the tax collector's feet. And then he says to them, as I have loved you, that's the way you should love each other. And then Jesus goes on to say, that's why people are going to know that I am really sent from God. When they see that Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot, not only is Simon not trying to kill Matthew, but they're friends, they're washing each other's feet, they're treating each other like brothers, they're going to know something's up. And guys, in the same way, when people come into this place and they see people who, they see people who were born and raised right here in, in the Carolinas, they see people who were first-generation immigrants from China or from Vietnam or from India or from, or, or from, from Canada or from, or from other places. And, and they, they see people that, are, that, that maybe love Trump and they see people that can't stand Trump. And they see people that drive Teslas and people that ride bicycles and take the bus. They, they see people that are that are single-income families, people that are two-income families. 
that they see people of, of all different stripes and colors. And they see that we treat each other like brothers and sisters. That's what's going to convince the world. When they see that we treat each other like members of the same family, that's what's going to convince the world that the Holy Spirit of God really is here. This isn't just some club that people get together in because we have the same hobbies. So let me ask you again, who are the people that God has put in your life? Who are the people that maybe it's harder for you to connect with? Christians that are in our church family that, that maybe you think, I mean, maybe there's some annoyance. Maybe you kind of resent them for, for one reason or the other, maybe. But, but not even necessarily. Maybe you just look at them and you say, hey, for whatever reason, you know, my kids are in the chess club, their kids are on the football team, or, or they make so much more money than me, or, so we never connect, like, or, or, or they're, they're in a different life stage than me. I have kids that are little, they have, kid, they have grandkids, they're the age of my kids, so we never really be able to connect. Who are those people that are kind of the Simon to your Matthew, or maybe the Jew to your Gentile? And, and here's what I, what I want to encourage you to do. The next time you're around somebody, and you see somebody, and you just, all you can think about is how different they are from you. I want you instead to dwell and to think about, and maybe even take out your journal if you're having a hard time with this, you can take out your journal and make a list of these things. Make a list of, of all of the things that you have in common with that fellow member of God's family. Man, I used to be dead in my sins. They used to be dead in their sins. But I'm alive in Christ Jesus. Now they're alive in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid the debt for, their, for my sins. He paid the debt for their sins. Jesus has transformed me into a member of his family. He's transformed them into a member of his family. The Holy Spirit of God is literally living inside of me. He's given me gifts and abilities I can use to help other people. He's done the same thing for them. The Holy Spirit is making me more and more like Jesus. He's doing the same thing for them. A thousand years from now, I'm going to be living together with this person in the family of God in Christ's kingdom. And the more we think about the things that we have in common, the, the less countercultural it seems that I could have a relationship a close, unified relationship with somebody who makes a lot more money than me or somebody who makes a lot less money than me or somebody who's from a different country than me or somebody who has a different personality than me or somebody whose kids have different activities than me or have different ages than mine, right? The, the more we're bound together in Christ. Well, the second thing, this is where we'll end, the second thing that, that we see in this family of God is that we have responsibilities to one another. Um, it's no coincidence that when God gives the Ten Commandments, okay, when the, the nation of Israel is being formed, and God gives the Ten Commandments to the, the Israelite people, what it looks like to be his people, it's no coincidence that six of the Ten Commandments are explicitly about the way we treat each other. It's not all about 
do this to God, do this, do this to God, give this to God. Six of those commandments are about how we treat each other. It's no coincidence that when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, I can't just give you one. I got to give you two. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one goes right along with it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's no coincidence that when Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been talking about for several months, when Jesus is talking about what it looks like to live as a member of his family, yeah, he, he talks about prayer, he talks about giving, but a lot of what's in Matthew, in Matthew 5 through 7, a lot of what's in those chapters is about our relationship with each other. Because when we come into relationship with God, we also come into relationship with each other as members of his family. And just like we have as his disciples, we have responsibilities towards God, not to be saved, but to walk with him and respond to his grace towards us. In the same way, we have responsibilities towards each other. And so the last thing I'm going to do, um, I, I want to read our, our church membership covenant. Our, our church membership covenant. I mean, so we've been talking about what it means to be a member of God's family, what it means to be a member of Northwest Community Church. And basically what the membership covenant is, it's not, this isn't like a legally binding contract. <laughs> um, it's not a piece of paper that we wave in each other's faces when, when, when somebody does something that we don't like. It's not something we weaponize against each other. What our membership covenant is, is it's a summary of the responsibilities that Jesus tells us in his word that as members of his family, these are the responsibilities that we have towards each other. Because again, just like when Rose is born to my family, she also becomes the sister to Valerie and Ruby, she also has responsibilities towards her sisters to treat them in a certain way. And so what I'm going to do, I'm just going to read this membership covenant. And then you might have a lot of questions. Feel free to come with them. Uh, and then for the next three weeks, we're going to kind of be unpacking this and talking about what it means to live this way and continuing to look at other passages in the Bible that describe what it looks like to live this way. Okay, so let me read this, and then, and then I'll close this in prayer. It says, we believe that we have been saved by grace and born again into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is our joy to partner together to follow Jesus here at Northwest Community Church as a family of disciples making disciples. We make the following commitments to God and to each other which we will endeavor to keep by the power of the Holy Spirit. We will submit to the Bible as the final authority on all issues. We will draw near to Jesus through personal and regular practice of prayer, Bible reading, and other spiritual disciplines. We will avoid all forms of immorality and seek to walk in holiness in every area of life. When we sin, we will confess our sin to God and to each other, repent, and seek to put our sin to death. We will love our family, friends, neighbors, and enemies, and forgive others as Jesus has forgiven us. We will speak the truth in love and avoid gossip, slander, and divisive talk. 
will regularly participate in weekly worship gatherings and community life at Northwest Community Church. We will submit to the church elders and protect the peace and unity of Northwest Community Church. We will handle conflict with gentleness and humility, according to the principles of Matthew 18, 15 through 17. We will make disciples by praying for and sharing the gospel with those in our spheres of influence and helping each other grow into maturity as followers of Jesus. We will give cheerfully and generously to support the ministry and expenses of Northwest Community Church, help those in need, and to make disciples of Jesus Christ all around the world. If we leave Northwest Community Church, we will unite with another local church to carry out our responsibilities as members of the family of God in Jesus Christ. God, thank you for filling this room with brothers and sisters. Thank you for making us one in Christ. God, I, these things that I just read, I can't do these things. They can't do these things. We can't do these things. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you we ask you, we beg you to work in our hearts, to work in our lives, to help us to do these things that only you can do in us and through us. And God, I pray that you would create countercultural relationships in this church body. I pray that you would just bind our hearts together because of all that we have in common in Christ Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.